Hey everyone, welcome back to an all new edition of the 20% podcast, the podcast that brings you tips and tricks from industry professionals across all industries that you can implement in your current job today. Today's guest is Robert Hamilton Owens, and I had a really tough time figuring out where to start introducing Robert as he is truly such an incredible story and an even more incredible human being. After being adopted, Robert was in leg splints until middle school and struggled getting into a lot of trouble throughout his high school years. Fast forwarding, he had a career in special operations as a pararescueman, and now he is a leadership coach, keynote speaker, and ultra endurance coach and athlete. Here's just a few of the many accomplishments that Robert has to date. He is a 12-time Ironman triathlon finisher. He completed the 300 of Sparta, which is an eight-day, 238-mile run and climb in Greece. He also completed the World Marathon Challenge, which is seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. This year, he's going to be speaking and coaching in South Africa, doing the North Pole Marathon in April, and also rowing a boat across the Atlantic Ocean in December with a team, which is amazing. In today's episode, we discussed what it means to go dark and really focus incredibly hard on your goal at hand, living an unbalanced life, mental versus physical training, taking people to their limits, how your decisions determine your destiny, and much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Robert Hamilton Owens. Robert, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. It's great to be with you, Tyler. And it's it's so great to be in such great company with with folks like yourself. Um, always like to give Scott McGregor uh, and the TCC Talent Champions Council a big shout out because that's a big reason why we're having the conversation today, like many of the other guests that we have. Um, but you know, I'm just really excited. You know, we were warming up a little bit, having a good conversation. Really excited to, to just talk about your career, your motivation, and really how you got to where you are today. So, some refer to you as the so, fittest. Oh, go ahead, Robert. So, so, so tell me, who am I? Tell me, who, who is this guy you're talking to? Well, exactly. That's the question I'm going to ask you. What I know you as is the fittest. I read 66 year old, so we'll just say 66 year old on the planet. So, tell me a little bit more about who is Robert Hamilton Owens in in. Uh, who, who are you? <laughs> you know, that's interesting. The quote is a real nice quote. It wasn't true, but it was nice. I was doing a podcast for Spartan Games. And Joe DeSena, the founder of Spartan Games, said, hey, Owens, you know, you're the fittest and mentally toughest 66-year-old in the world. I said, no, I'm not. He said, yeah, you are. He said, there's kids that can't do what you do. And I said, well, if they practice, they could. <laughs> anyway. It was fun to be on the podcast with Dodger Stadium and talking about fitness with Joe. As you see, maybe um, I see his new commercials for his new program, TV program. When I watch Shark Tank, it's a commercial afterwards. It's called No Retreat. And it's taking business executives over the edge. You know, It should be real fun. It's a weekly television program now, just, just starting, I think, this month. Wow, that's exciting. I'm really excited to check that one out. And we'll, we'll definitely link that into the show notes. Uh, perfect. So I want to take a big step back. One of the biggest things that I love doing in these podcasts is really understanding the early years and really what got you to where you are today. So taking a big step back to the high school, Robert Hamilton Owens, before Saddleback College, what were you like? And, and ultimately, fitness is one of the biggest missions and lessons are just biggest parts of your life. Where did this whole fitness journey start? What jobs were you doing then? What Tell, tell us about what Robert was like as, as a child in, in high school age. You know, um, I'm an adopted kid. I'm adopted from a hospital about 20 miles inland from me called St. Joseph's Hospital in Orange, California. Um, and I was adopted by two really smart people. My dad was a Phi Beta Kappa out of Stanford uh, undergrad and grad. My mom was a 
uh, 4.0 out of UCLA in Wellesley. And um, I got adopted into this family. I was the second. Uh, back then, there wasn't abortion. And so you could go to this place and you pull up these screens and there was bassinets of babies, just as many as you can imagine. And um, you could have as many as you want. <laughs> and parents would just go there and say, I'll take that one, I'll take that one, you know, and wow. just walk around and take them home. So they came and got my sister first, four years before me, and then they came back and got me. And uh, it was very nice of them because, um, A, I appreciate being given a family, but B, I was a special needs kind of kid. I had bad legs, bad ankles. So I wore corrective shoes, braces, um, all the way through elementary school. I couldn't, couldn't run. So I played tetherball, if you remember tetherball. Yep. I played tetherball by myself where all the kids were playing kickball and stuff until about sixth grade. And in sixth grade, my ankles straightened out. My knees stopped knocking into each other. And uh, the podiatrist did a good job. So I began to run. And yet I was lousy at everything. I was lousy at Little League, lousy at football. I just couldn't find my way. And my mom, though, had always thrown me in the water. And so she said I was a water baby because I just took to it in the diapers, you know, and throw me in the pool. And I always swam and didn't have any, any problem with it. So as it turned out, I surfed a lot junior high, um, did the water stuff, hang out at the beach. And then I ran into some guys that said, hey, you need to play water polo and swim at my three-year high school. And I said, what is water polo? And they said, soccer in the swimming pool. And I said, really? And so they said, hey, you get a tan, you soak rays, you swim. And all the guys are lifeguards at the beach, you know, for their part-time job. I said, I'm in. So I went and tried out. And I wasn't very good, um, but I was good enough to, to be in the game. And so my coach was a real interesting coach. He was an ex-Olympian from Hungary, and he could barely, barely speak English. And his name is John Urbanchek, J-O-N Urbanchek. And so John was my coach, and to fast forward on John, um, John was our high school coach, and then he got hired away by Long Beach State, and Long Beach State brought him in to be the swim coach and then University of Michigan hired him as the swim coach University of Michigan and then the U.S. Olympic team hired him and he became the U.S. Olympic coach for 20 years. So when he got a hold of us in high school he treated us like Olympians he just kicked our butt and he just called us names and threw balls at our head you know in the pool and flip boards at us and say you're not working hard enough do it again you know all right. kinds of stuff and he produced in us this thing where we were maybe not the most talented, but we outproduced more talented kids. And pretty soon we were winning league championships and then Southern California championships. And that's why I got hired away by Long Beach State. And I learned from that, that A, I had talent. And B, if I worked hard, I could oftentimes outwork better talent. And so I was one of those guys that's on a scale of 10, I probably had six or seven talent, but I was competing against guys that had nine and 10 talent. So we put two guys from my high school team on the U.S. Olympic water polo team. And we put another guy who swam with us on the U.S. Olympic team swimming. So we were, we were swimming you know, for a three-year swimmer. I'm sorry, the jet school over here. With, with, when you're an average kid in a three-year high school program, swimming against age groupers who have been swimming all their lives, and you, and you train with them, you pick up your game because you just get left behind uh, a lot if you don't compete in polo or in, in swimming. And that was good for me 
I, I didn't have a lot of self-worth. So I, I just um, tried to find something that I could be good at, something where I could fit. Ultimately, what happened was I got out of high school and I was pretty wild in high school. Um, I, I went through my mom dying. She died of lupus when I was in sixth grade and they resuscitated her, brought her back. But she went from 145 pounds down to 90 pounds. So I had a sick mom all the way through school, uh, in and out of the hospital issues. And it was just trauma to come home and see your mom with two, two casts on her arm because she broke both of her arms at the same time because too much prednisone and cortisone from, from the lupus. Or she'd break an ankle. All the stuff tripped over a garden hose or just something. And um, also during that time, I was sexually abused twice by eighth grade. And that messed with my head because back then you don't talk about that stuff. That's just leave it to beaver, you know, just that's the way it goes. And so that's the way it went. And I didn't know how to process that stuff with kids that I saw all the time. And so um, I drank a lot. And so I started drinking heavy in eighth grade and uh, drank heavy till I was 20 years old and crashed cars and really enjoyed seeing how drunk I could get, how wild I could get the crazy things you could do right i just i just was screwed up when i got out of high school i'd been a beach lifeguard and i went to college and then quit and ultimately i went to college five times um first four times while i was drinking and um in our lifeguard department where i was a beach lifeguard back then you had all kinds of kids in reserve units so we had navy seal reservists who were lifeguards at the beach, going to college, and then they did the reserve thing on the weekend. But we also had pararescue guys that were pararescue guys, college lifeguards at the weekend. And once for two weeks of summer, you know, that kind of thing. And they said to me at about 20 years old, they said, um, if you don't clean up your act, you're gonna die. I mean, you're out there. You're making bad decisions. I got burned in a lifeguard beach party. You know, I fell into a bonfire hurt my face and my chest and everything, you know, just screwing around, just stupid things. And they said, um, you have a lot of talent, but you need to change if you're going to live and if you're going to be something. All, all, your, all these people are progressing in life and I wasn't progressing. I was stuck in a Friday night, Saturday night rut. So they said, and why don't you become a pararescuer? And I said to myself, I don't have the talent be a pararescue. I'm just a C kind of a guy. I'm a, I'm a number six or a number seven. Those guys are nines and tens. You got to be studs, you know, to be great. And they said to me, no, if you'll do what we say, if you'll follow what we say, you have the ability to be a special ops pararescue or Navy SEAL or any of them. You have that ability. And I didn't have faith in me, but I had faith in their faith in me. And I said, really? And they said, yeah. And I said, so what do I got to do? And they told me that I had to go dark, meaning no parties, no girls, no weed, no booze, no anything, but just focus. Say no to everything to say yes to one thing. And we're going to train you for six months. And we're going to train you hard. But we know what's going to happen when you get in. So if you'll do what we say and you go dark, and, and throw everything else away for six months to do this one thing, you can do that. So I did that. And so they just crushed me. They just ran me in the sand and beach and stairs and 
pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, every kind of thing you can imagine. And as it turned out, I went in after that six months and all my friends said, what are you doing? And this was during Vietnam. So most people are trying to get out of Vietnam and I'm trying to get in. And that was not a very popular stand to take. My parents didn't want me to do this. And my girlfriend didn't want me to do this. All my partying friends didn't want me to do this. Like, have you lost your mind? I mean, what are you doing? I said, you won't understand it. I'm just tired of being like you. I'm tired of being like me. I'm gonna change. And they said, why? The girls would say, will we see you Friday night? I go, no. Why? We like you when you come to parties. Yeah, I know. I'm done. <laughs> and so they said, you've lost your mind. I said, maybe. So I focused and went in. We had a class of 150. And um, all the good guys quit. Because they weren't used to being crushed. They weren't used to being taken to the edge over and over. And there's something about training into pain and making pain your friend. And my guys taught me, you're gonna be miserable the whole time. And they're gonna to try to get your head to see if they can crush your why. Why are you here? Do you want it that bad? As it turned out, our class graduated seven out of 150. Wow. And all the good guys quit because once they got rocked, they didn't know what to do because they had not, they'd always been all-stars. They'd always been nines and tens and no one had ever challenged them. So when they got challenged and the instructor said, he thinks he's hot, let's go crush him and make him equal to everybody else in here. They didn't know what to do mentally because they'd never been in that position of feeling weakness before or vulnerability or uh, exposed to their ego to not being as hot as they thought they were. And so the seven of us, we looked at each other, we went, what are we doing here? We're all the good guys. And all the good guys hadn't trained like we trained before we went in. And so we graduated seven, and then they added some rollbacks. Other classes had been injured into our class. We got out of about 16. And at the end of that, I just noticed, gosh, if I would focus, I mean, if I'd really focus, you know, if I really wanted to date a girl, I'd focus. If I really want to make money, I'd focus. If I really want to go snow skiing, I'd focus. If I if I want to go snow skiing and I had a final, I didn't care. I was going to snow skiing, you know. When right. I focused, things can happen. And I hadn't got, I, I wasn't used to putting that kind of attention on that. And what we call that today is living an unbalanced life for a season. Not all your life, but for a period, college, career, something. You just, you have to do what you got to do, entrepreneur. You have to focus on making something work, getting mentors, don't live with your own stuff, find why other people have failed before you because smarter people have done what you're trying to do and not made it. So why is it that you're doing it and you have seen others fail at it? What makes you think you're not going to fail like them? So you get mentoring and you ask the questions and then you focus. And I learned from that, that I could, I could do a lot more. So I, I went back to college act when I got out of military, no problem. I focused, got A's, you know, it was a piece of cake then because I didn't, I didn't have all this periphery stuff pulling at me. I just said, this is what I'm going to do for three and a half years. I'm just going to focus on this, get these degrees and get out of here. That, that then carried me um, to where I had five kids, got married, had five kids, and I focused on them. And I didn't play golf on Saturdays with all the guys because I said, if I've given birth to these five kids, they deserve to have a dad 
on the weekends versus me disappearing to play with all my friends. And so I just focused on these five kids. And as, as it turned out as well, I, I planted a church. And I planted a church at the University of Nevada, Reno. It was UNLV in the South, Las Vegas, UNR. We're the Wolfpack. And there's a guy going to be drafted this year by the name of Charlie Strong. Chris, and he's going to see, he'll probably be in the second or third round. He's a good quarterback coming out of Nevada. Anyway, I became chaplain for football, baseball, basketball, because I like kids. I like working with kids like I used to be. <laughs> Screwed up. <laughs> you know, you're going to lose your scholarship, dude. You keep doing that, you know, or you're going to get her pregnant, or you know what, those drugs are going to eat you up, or blah, blah, blah. And so for 25 years, um, I did football, baseball, basketball, just hanging out with kids. And during that time, I just did local races just to keep my head on. I'd run and swim or do something, you know, I liked being in shape because I just, it was a way for me to process and have therapy from having five kids. <laughs> it was like, Robert, I'm having, I'm having a second child here now. Does that mean I need to start running? Is that what your advice is? <laughs> no, it means you need to have five. <laughs> but I just, there are times when you just need to space out and think, what am I doing? Or how did I do this? Or how did I get in this place? Or they just crashed the car or they just got arrested or they just, and they were so cute and sweet when they were little. And then somehow they came, became like me <laughs> when I was that age, you know? And so today they're all doing great and all is good, but there was a period there from junior high to about 24 years old that they gave me a run for my money. You know, like this is hard work parenting these kids. Like we had disability kids, we had kids with ADD and ADHD and, had learning disabilities we had all kinds of issues which you don't know they're all so cute when you get them born and then they sort of manifest and grow their personalities come out anyway people said i i got what i deserved and my parents said you got what you deserved and i said thanks but anyway we survived that and at about 50 years old my my uh five, six foot five 235 runs a four four tight end son said to me, it was just being a punk. He said, hey, dad, you know, you're really old. You're turning 50. I mean, like, might as well shoot yourself. I mean, like, what are you going to do? You're old. And I said, you know what? You're a punk. I'm going to make a comeback. And what happened was, when I, when I was in school my last year, I read a Sports Illustrated article about this thing called the Iron Man. And it was stupid. The guys were drinking beers and showing up in costumes. And they brought bicycles from all, not dead speeds. They just brought bicycles, you know helmets, baseball caps. Anyway, I read about it and someone said, what do you think? And I go, that's rad. I mean, I could do that. Swim, bike, run. I'm a lifeguard beach guy. I can figure out some way to ride a bicycle, you know, and I'll figure out some way to run. Pararescue. I just trained pararescue. Anyway, as it turned out, I did the training and um, it was year number three, 1980. There was a hundred of us. The year before there was 12. Year before there was 15, first year there was 12, my year was 100. Anyway, we all showed up in Honolulu. It was the last year that Ironman was in Honolulu. The next year it moved to Kona on the big island and became the Kona World Championship. But before that was in Honolulu. That's when, again, guys just showed up drinking beers and eating sushi. And um, everybody had their own car as a support car. So when you took off 100 people, there were 100 cars. <laughs> and 100 cars on the road, leapfrogging each other on a two-lane road. And opening the side door of a minivan and handing you some sushi, 
any good apple or something. Then they dropped back and it, it was so much fun just riding the bike because it was crazy out there. Oncoming cars had no idea what was happening as they moved into a, a hundred minivans or something going like this, you know, trying to hand out food and stuff. Anyway, I got 39th and uh, I found that I liked being in shape. I mean, I like being in that kind of shape. I like training because when I train, I think, and I process and I get alone. People say, can I train with you? I go, oh, no, no, I need to be alone. This is where I process business, marriage, kids, uh, future, dreams. When I'm out there by myself, I can think. And it became therapy for me to just get alone and train. And from that point, I just started doing them every year, unless I was injured. And so I got injured a couple of times and missed, I don't know, three or four. But I knocked out the next 11 Ironmans um, from 50 to 60, 66 or so. Like one time I got hit by a car head on riding my bike, you know, some guy made a left turn in front of me and just I ended up on his dashboard and then up over his windshield on his roof, you know, sliding with my feet clamped in my, my, my shoes, you know, my bike and wow, boom, you know, end up in the hospital. Don't make that Ironman, you know, but there was always some sort of things that came along. And then um, at about when I turned 59, um, my father, my mom died at 91 and my dad was 92. And my, I said to my dad, hey dad, what do you want to do? He said, I'd like you to come home and take care of me. And at that time I'd gone through a divorce and it was a real painful divorce of, after 30 years of marriage and five kids. It was during the recession, 2006, seven, eight, nine. Lost the house, lost the job, lost everything that we're doing. Um, every house on my street, except for two, were for sale in foreclosure stuff. Because in Reno, um, Nevada is a state that doesn't have income tax, it has sales tax. So if you're a tourist, you go to Nevada and we live off of tourism. If no one's coming to Nevada, there's no money coming in. So everybody lost their job. So you know it's bad when the McDonald's closes and the Denny's closes and the Chevron station closes and the casino closes and everything's just closing up because there's no jobs. Anyway, I was trying to figure out what I'm gonna do now. And so my dad said, why don't you come home? And I came home and little did I know, but I took care of my dad um, from 92 to 101. And I said to my dad, are you ever gonna die? And he goes, uh, I don't know why I said, I mean, I, I know I'd take care of you, be with you a year or two or three, but you're just living. I mean, you just, you're excited. He got really excited when I came home. He went from being depressed to, hey, you're home. Let's do stuff together. And so we did stuff together and I put him on a fitness program. And the fitness program was that he couldn't get out of his chair because he was a reader. And the more you don't use your thighs, the more they atrophy. Right. So the more you read, the more they get skinny. You know, you can't get up out of your chair to go to the bathroom you can't get off the toilet you have a tough time getting out of bed so you call people hey can you help me get out of this chair can you help me and i said to him this isn't going to cut it so i put him on a fitness program and he gained all of his stuff back like he that's a whole nother story but i we did a lot of air squats him on a cane his hand out doing air squats and stuff yeah anyway he got his legs back and he died in better shape at 101 than he was than he was at 92. But he said to me, what are you doing? I'm dead. And I said, I don't know. He said, you need to have a business plan from 60 to 90. Those are your best years. I said, they are. He said, yeah, you made all your mistakes. 
You know what you've done. You know who you are. You know your gifts. That gray hair should work for you with wisdom and insight. So what are you going to do from, from 60 to 90? Because your generation is living longer than any generation around. Everyone's living longer. And so they retired me out at 60, gave me a, a watch and said, go play golf. And I didn't want to retire, but they forced me to retire at 60. If I'd known I was going to live 35 years longer after retirement, he said that 95, I would have started another career. But he just said, go play golf and die. You know, you're, you're done. We don't need you anymore. You've got your retirement, go, go fade. And he said, well, you're not going to fade. So who do you want to be and how do you want to come back when I'm dead? And I thought about it. I thought like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to pasture per se anymore. I like health and fitness. Um, I was getting phone calls uh, with special ops. Hey, will you come back and work with some of the kids in our in Air Force special ops? I really enjoyed working with the young people, remembering my seven guys that graduated and looking at kids and saying, hey, dude, you didn't come ready. You know, like, we're going to crush you. And they'd say, really? And I'd say, we like you, but you, you just didn't come prepared. You can come back in two years. And then we'd crush these kids and say they'd cry and you're done. You're out. You should have come prepared. Um, go back and focus and come back. Anyway, um, as I worked more with the military guys, um, and then I got involved with Seal Fit, which is a CrossFit gym made for SEALs, Navy, Navy SEALs, so Seal Fit versus CrossFit for incoming Navy SEAL kids. Um, I just said, I'm going to come back and help them know this. So I made a plan to make my comeback because I've been out of commission for 10 years. I'm going to, I'm going to come back as a health and wellness expert and a speaker on fitness and a speaker to seniors because I was now classified senior or elderly, which sort of pissed me off. <laughs> I mean, one guy just like you, a podcaster, he had me on. He said, I've never had an elderly person on my podcast before. I said, what you say to me? I said, he said, sorry, sorry, you're not elderly, you're a senior. And I go, hey, I, I don't like this. You know? And he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you're over. <laughs> I said, I'll have your ass. You know, who do you think you are? Hold on, let me delete my notes for the, the rest of the episode. I'll, I'll delete that part. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so I, if you're an entrepreneur listening to this, I put together a business plan on how to make my comeback. And so I found four events that I was told I should not show up for because I was too old. I was, and I did, I planned five, what was another Ironman? But the other four, don't show up, you're too old. We don't want you, you're a liability. And so I went into a three-year plan of training to see if I could get as strong in my 60s as I was in my 20s. And when people say you're in shape, in shape for what? Golf, or swimming, or walking, or running hills, or wall balls, or, or stairs, you know, what kind, is it, is it a functional fitness? Is it a, you know, Olympic uh, weightlifting thing? What, what do you mean you're in shape? And so most people are either aerobic athletes where they're, they go a long time, keep the heart rate low, or an anaerobic where you jack your heart up like a hundred yard dash, you know, and you boxing or MMA, your heart goes up. Right. But most of the time people are not aerobic and anaerobic. And so what we are in special ops is that we're both aerobic and anaerobic. We have to get into a firefight and bullets are flying and your heart rate goes up and you have a tough time breathing, you know, and all your training wants to go out the window because it's just 
the panic of the moment. And you may have to do that for two or three or four or five hours, but then you may have to stay up for the next two or three days and get someplace or do something, which is more of aerobic endurance stuff after the anaerobic thing melts off you, you know? So I picked five events that were both aerobic and anaerobic to see if I could become an aerobic athlete and an anaerobic athlete. And in doing so, I finished all five in seven months. And um, that's when Joe DeSanta called me to the podcast and said, you're crazy. I mean, what did you just do? And I said, I want to see in my 60s if I could get back where I was special ops. And it took me three years. And I followed the plan and I focused. I went dark. I, I lived an unbalanced life for three years. Here it's coming get- back. It's coming back. That same that same darkness that you had as a child, right. you took that all of that adversity and you took all of that might, whether it was wearing the, you know, wearing the leg braces younger. I'm sure that gave you some motivation. And throughout the years of, oh man, had these people who came and helped you and, and helped point you in the right direction, all the way up to this moment, it makes a hundred percent sense why you are where you are today. Well, remember that there is no perfect person. Everybody has issues. There's nobody's got it all together. Everybody has stuff. Most people deny their stuff, but they have stuff. And so from my brokenness as a kid, I never want to be broken again. And so many of us who do things like this have issues in their life that they've turned this negative into a positive. And it took, a, it took a trauma event or set of years to set me on a path of believing that I really wasn't stupid, that I really was smart, I really was capable, that I had talent. And as you said, it all goes back to my youth of people say you can't do stuff and you're, you're too old or too young or too stupid or too tall or too short or your color, your, you know, your culture. Right. And they wire your brain to think limited. And to all the people that are listening to this, there's something called neuroplasticity. And that's where you rewire your brain from the negative to the positive. And every day you do things, and that's a whole nother topic, where I help special ops kids and athletes rewire out of the negative into the positive to where they become a believer in themselves versus a doubter of themselves. And what, what's your biggest piece of advice on building that self-worth for people who may be, uh, whether you're an athlete or obviously you work with a lot of the athletes going into the seals or even somebody, um, later on in their career, like what's your biggest piece of advice on somebody building self-worth who maybe doesn't have it right now? Um, all of us have a dialogue in our head every day. I've been posting on Facebook some videos where I talk about, do you ever audit your thinking? Do you audit your thinking? Or do you, most people just think, and they think all day long and they don't think anything about their thinking. They just think, whether it's positive, whether it's negative, whether it's critical, whether it's pessimistic, they just think, and they think that that's who they are. But more and more, you can help people identify the things that are in their head that shouldn't be in their head and where they came from, and then stop those thoughts. So, you know, you're, you're ugly. No, you're not. Well, how do I change that? Well, I'm going to change that. And I work at that, or I'm too small, or I'm too short, or I'm this, or I'm that. And we teach kids to rewire the brains so that those thoughts no longer become limiters. 
And it takes, as we say, we go to the physical gym and then we go to the mental gym and we work out in the mind gym as much as we do the physical gym. So, so you think, do you think it's equal there? Cause this is a big debate. And I actually did a poll on this uh, a couple of weeks ago because I, uh, I don't know what you know about my background, but I have a master's in exercise physiology. So I'm very familiar with everything that you've mentioned uh, previously, but also over the past five years, I have took on a, a pretty intense meditation process. And by that, I mean, I do uh, headspace 10 to 20 minutes a day. So yep. what do you think the, is it more important to be physically fit? mentally fit like if you had to do a breakdown what's the percentages well our kids our young people that come into the special ops community think it's 100% physical and really it's not it's 80% mental and 20% physical because the mind quits before the body does the mind will always cave make excuses find a way to foul out before the body breaks down and there's an interesting thing for your viewers to know that there's a different chemical released in your brain from mental pain than physical pain, different chemical. So you first hit the wall mentally. I'm overwhelmed. It's too difficult. I can't do it. I'm too tired, whatever it is. And when you get through that mental focus, then the body will kick in here and give you different signals of your tired and overwhelmed. And once you figure that the book is called, how bad do you want it? And the author is um, Matt Fitzgerald. He's a Sports Illustrated writer and a triathlete magazine writer. And he did this PhD thesis on how some people quit and then come back and do it. And the transformation of quitting in the, in the Olympics or in the Tour de France or in special ops, when they hit these walls mentally and physically, and then getting a coach to take them back through those things and take them to the wall again and teach them how to go through it versus being overwhelmed by it. And that's the reworking of how you think of things and making pain or miserableness your friend. Yeah, what's, is, it, is it literally just continually putting yourself in these positions of hitting that wall and building that mental and physical resiliency over time? How, how do you yes. make pain your friend? I'll give you an example. I've passed out three times on the highway in the marathon in the Ironman. Just fall over on the highway. And yet... I know that pain. I know that thing. I've made it my friend. When I wake up, I go, wow, another nice nap. What do we do? Give me some fluids. And the ambulances are always there saying, come on, you need to go to the hospital. I go, no, no, no. You understand. I know this. I've been here. And so what we do is we take people to their limits. And we take them to the limits and we say, look in our eyes. What's going on? I'm freaking out. Good. Breathe. Come back to the breath. Go back to your breathing. Everything is in your breathing, dude. I mean, you're out of control until you breathe. Breathe. And not mouth breathe, nasal breathe, box breathe. Because your breathing slows down your heart rate. It slows, slows down your emotional panic, flight, and fight. And so if you get your head back, then you won't freak out. And so we take them. We say to them, today we're going to crush you. We're going to take you to this place. And we're going to look in your eyes. And we're gonna say, are you cooked? And they go, cooked, we go, good, breathe. Now get control of your mind. And we take them through the process and then they get through that thing. And we go, ready, let's do it again. And we take them again and we say, breathe. And then after five days in a row of doing that, they get it. It's not gonna kill them, they're gonna die. They're miserable, they're tough, but 
I can get through this if I think my way through. So I, I'll give you a story. There's a, I was doing an Air Force Special Ops. I was at Lackland Air Force Base, and we had a class. And, you know, doing burpees is hard for tall people. Short people can do them. You know, it's not a big deal. But over six feet tall, you know, it's long way down, long way back up. Right. We had a kid who was a, a soccer coach and, um, and therapist out of North Carolina, really athletic, really a, a good guy, probably 28 years old. Anyway, he had a tough time in some events when the other guys had tough times in other events, but his were distance stuff. And then, of course, PT, like burpee stuff. And so one afternoon, um, this class had screwed up a lot. They've been going since four in the morning. And we got to four in the afternoon of after doing mud PT, all the PT in the mud, spraying them with hoses, keeping them muddy, wet, Texas, hot Texas, summer, you know, humidity and stuff, full battle fatigues all day. And we got to four o'clock and they thought it was over. And the instructor said, you know what? You guys screwed up today. How many times? One, two, three. You owe me 300 burpees before chow. And they went, oh my God. He said, go over there. We're going to hose you down, get the mud off you. We're going to stay wet. And we're going to start doing burpees. How long do you think it'll take you before you get through 300 burpees? So we went through that thing. And then there's people in the back are the ones hiding, you know? So you look at the back to see who's hiding back there. So they think maybe no one's looking at them. And then they may bring them, come to the front, make them lead the class. So this guy was in the back and he was having a really tough time. And he had slobber coming out of his mouth and snot. And he was just having a tough time. So instructor brought him to the front and said, lead the class. And the class goes, oh no, this guy can't lead anybody. I mean, he's, he's failing. And so I said, can I have this guy? And uh, the instructor said, yeah, he's all, all yours. So I went and got in his face and I said, look at me, breathe. Breathe. Now lead this team and give me 10. Anyway, we did that. And then we went to 20, and then we went to 30, and then we went to 40, and then we went to 50, and he's struggling again. And the snot's coming out of his nose, and drool's coming out of his mouth, he's shaking like this, you know. I said, open your eyes. Wouldn't open his eyes. Open your eyes. Look at me. Breathe. You know, so just to say that he had a miserable experience when he got to 300. He was shaking and falling over, and he was just out of it. We're trying to see if he would quit. We'll take you as far as you can go. We want to see if there's a quit inside you because we cannot allow quitters to be trained. We can't spend millions of dollars on people who are going to quit, get other people injured. So if we can get you to quit, then we get you out of here. We want people that would rather die than quit because Taliban and ISIS, Al-Qaeda, they won't ask you, how do you feel? Would you like a break? When they smell- Or they're not giving you the box breathing exercises in your face. (laughs) They look, they see it and they're after you double hard. So anyway, at the end, they went upstairs and had chow and took shower stuff. Then I spoke to him at seven o'clock from seven to eight. So he's over there. And I said to him, you know, you stand up. He stands up. I said, so what happened today? And he said, it was the greatest experience of my life. I said, why? He said, I just went someplace I'd never, ever been before. And I pulled it off and I made it because of your help. And I said, they started crying in front of the class. Started crying. Like, I've never experienced that before. I said, nobody has. You're not supposed to. But you need to know 
that if you get confronted, you have that inside you. That you know that you can dig deeper than you thought you could dig. And you didn't quit. You just hung in there and did what I told you to do. And all the other students are just looking at me. And I said to them, and I want to do the same for all of you. And they just stared at me. Every one of you need to know you have 20 times more potential in you than you ever thought possible, but you need a mentor to bring it out of you. And most of you don't want this training the way you say you do because there's too much pain. There's mental pain, emotional pain, social pain, financial pain, relational pain. To go dark and to train and go through pain every day for a test that's coming up when you go in, most of you don't want that bad. You still want your girls. You still want your parties on Friday, Saturday nights. You want your drugs. You want your this or that. You want to be cool. You want your bling. When you want something this bad, you'll do whatever it takes, even hiring someone to take you through this stuff over and over and over. So when you go, bring it. What are you oh going to do to me? Bring it. There is so and, many of these same parallels in your life, Robert, that literally going dark, focus, 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 and push yourself beyond your beyond anything that you could have imagined. The, those three lessons alone could be related to every single person on this earth. And I, I really, really appreciate that. There's a couple quick, I know we're rolling up on time way too quickly. We'll have to do another right, round. No, no, this has been phenomenal. I, I, I there's so many. Here's what, here's what I want. I want all your listeners to send you a note and say, this is what I got out of this. I want you to have all your listeners say, you heard Robert. Now, what are your, what are your takeaways? And every one of your listeners ought to tell you the lesson that they learned because it's invaluable. You can hear it, but it's another thing to apply it because every one of your listeners has 20 times more potential in them, but they don't believe it and they don't want to pay the price to, to step into that new thing or that next thing. And you're giving them an opportunity by having this conversation. Yes. And I appreciate it. And I think this is an incredible lesson too. Even for myself, I'm thinking like, yeah, okay. I, you know, I run two miles a day, but maybe I could do more, right? What, what else could I do? So there's so many things, and, and I really appreciate that. couple quick questions that I, I, I feel like I have to ask. Number one, really quick, what does a daily what does a day look like for you from a, a fitness routine, from a wake-up perspective through the course of the day? And it doesn't need to be you know every single detail, but I'm in the gym from X to X, I'm doing this. What does a day look like for somebody who is running marathons in the, in the, the Arctic and in, in the North Pole? Tell me a little bit more about that. You know, again, life is full of seasons. When I'm in training for an event, I'm usually up 4.30, and I'm at my CrossFit by 6. And I do my CrossFit from 6 to 7, which is for strength training. Um, and then I'll go do cardio. I'll get a, a run for maybe half an hour to an hour to an hour and a half, depending what I'm training for. When I'm not training, I get up usually about 7, and I have a cup of coffee and say hi to my wife and act like a normal husband instead of a disappearing husband. And um, she says, are we done yet? Can you come back and be normal? You know, I go, no, I got another. We'll just give you three weeks and normal. And so I actually get up and my crossfit time. And then um, I'm either running or doing something, a lot of stretching. And, and I try to work out maybe five days a week, sometimes six. And my total workout time usually should be about an hour and a half to two hours. And so 
then I do my day. I do my podcasts. I do my emails. I do my phone calls. I do my stuff. I live like a retiree. Um, but it all depends. Like, I'm going to be in Africa speaking the whole month of March. And I have this North Pole Marathon coming up at the end of April. So my whole thing is, how do I lay a base from January, February to then go to Africa, kick back a little bit, but have a base ready to go when I get home here the first in two weeks, three weeks, I can do marathon training. It's not like starting from scratch. So there's a strategy of what you're doing. I'm planning on rowing across the Atlantic. And I'll be rowing with the team in December. I'll probably go into training for that on thighs um, and upper body probably around September. And I'll, I'll focus on thigh work and, and this stuff. It's an aerobic, not anaerobic. You just row this boat, you know, but you do it for 40 days in a row. Every three hours you're rowing or sleeping. Three hours. So it's a, it's a mental game of never being in your right mind because you never get deep sleep, never get deep REM sleep. But it's doable. I've sailed the Atlantic uh, from the same place. So I think it'd be fun to row it. But it's the mind game of can I practice now for three months to get ready for something like that? And every lister has a season, you know, for what? You know, I need to do this for how long? To what avail? And some of them are two weeks, some are six months. And you just, you know, I don't have a normal life. I figure out what my next thing is and I, and I build my life around that thing, get it done. That is phenomenal, Robert. Oh my goodness. It, it's, why, is, why is that phenomenal? I think it's phenomenal that you don't have to be doing this stuff, but you, but you are. And you're taking all of that mental training that you've done. Like, I can't even imagine how much mental preparation you need to do to, like, who the hell wants to row for 40 straight days across the, the Atlantic? You need to have a, a large amount of mental resiliency in order to do that combined with that, with that physical. So that is, that is what's so amazing to me. Now, the final question I'd like to ask before we wrap up is I ask every single guest on the show, if you were to teach a college 101 class based upon your entire life experience, what would you teach and why? I would teach a class on your decisions determine your destiny. I would talk about making better decisions, family, finances, relationships, investing in your personal growth, uh, getting rid of friends, um, getting rid of, I don't have any negative people in my life. I don't allow them in because I have enough negativity in my own brain. I don't need them to come bring theirs and add to mine. I work on mine every day, you know? Right. So, you know, the, the decisions in your life that seem small end up being very huge. And, um, you know, why five kids and the young people that I work with today, I, I ask them, you know, are you sure you want to do that? And what are you going to get out of it? And who cares what they say or what they say? Because you won't even know them in five years. So why are you trying to be cool to that group when they won't even remember who you are? Or why do you have to, have to spend your money on this stuff? Do wheels on your car. Great. Why don't you invest that up? Well, I like the rims on my car. I like my truck. I like my this. That's all great. But those those are all monies that are not reproducing money. So, you know, it's all waste. You're, it all depreciates. You know, I talk to them about those decisions. Actually, I'm doing a class, you know, for TCC. I'm doing a five-week class coming up on those kind of things. Um, and it starts next Tuesday. But people have been saying, I want to hear some of the stuff that a 70-year-old would tell a 30-year-old. I'm saying, well, all right. I, I've been stupid a lot in my life, so I'll tell 
I'll tell you what, what I would do different. It'd be fun to teach that class. That would be so fun. And I think I, I would definitely subscribe to it as well. So I really appreciate it, Robert. Where can people learn more about you and everything you have going on? You can go to my website. My website is roberthamiltonowens.com. Um, my email is Robert Owens with two S's. I did that because there's too many Robert Owens's out there. <laughs> Robert Owens with two S's at Yahoo. I, um, uh, Kathy today set me up with my YouTube channel. So I'm going to be posting a bunch of stuff on YouTube under Robert Hamilton Owens. And uh, my Facebook is just Robert H. Owens. And I post videos a lot where I talk on things and I get a lot of response from people all over the world saying, hey, say that again. I want to know more about that. Talk more. So they can get a hold of you that way. That's, this has been so fantastic, Robert. Thank you so much. Tyler, you're a good guy. And to all your friends, now write Tyler and tell him what you liked about this and what you thought about that. Absolutely. I'm going to hold everybody accountable to that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And if you enjoyed the show, it would mean the absolute world if you went to Apple and rated and reviewed the show for me as well, is this is a fantastic way to help grow the show and help to bring in fantastic guests and even more listeners to our tribe. So stay tuned for next episode and have a fantastic rest of your day.